morning, church. I'm appreciative of the opportunity to share the word of God with you, and I'm thankful that the Lord has saw it fit to exposit his text through broken sinners as myself, and that I could share this good news with all who have a ear to hear. Let us pray. Father, we come before you now thankful. Your word is true and straight. Lord, prepare the hearts and minds of your people. Have them be centered on you, Lord Jesus, that they might see you lifted up on high and believe. We pray for the saints, Lord, that they are edified, the ministries multiplied, and that you, Lord Jesus, are glorified. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So as you've heard already, we are reading in the Gospel of Luke chapter 19, starting at verses 11 through 27. This is a parable, which is a story. Jesus is doing this to bring attention to the coming events in Jerusalem, where it was seen that the kingdom of God was to be ordained and come into fruition. But Jesus, knowing this, said this parable to assist his fellow disciples in knowing what was to happen. But I want to say something first to kind of have you understand what's going on here. Did you know that as an employee to a company, if you have a side job, a side gig, or as more properly known, a side hustle, you can get sued for loss of compensation by the company you work for? In America, the faithless servant doctrine is a doctrine under the laws of some states where an employee who acts unfaithfully towards their employers must forfeit to their employer all compensation during the period of disloyalty. Wow. An example would be where an employee is operating a competing business while still working for the employer. Some courts have permitted an employer to recover not only the damages or the profits that the business created for that employee, but also the wages that the employee was earning while they were cheating the employer. Don't worry, Rhode Island has chosen not to adopt this doctrine. (laughs) But this is interesting because of the text today, which deals with stewardship. This sermon could be also called Counsel About Stewardship. And And it has just two simple points this morning. The first point is stewardship given. Stewardship given. You'll see that in verses 11 through 14. And the second point this morning shall be stewardship examined with two subpoints of the faithful. And then the second subpoint is the evil. The faithful being verses 15 through 19 and the evil being verses 20 through 27. The first point of today's message, stewardship given. The big question being answered by this parable is, how Jesus' disciples should conduct themselves before the second coming. This matters because it leads directly to the initial question about the kingdom of God in our text this morning in verse 11. It says, he went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they thought the kingdom of God was going to appear right away. This is a big deal because the parable also prepared the disciples for the postponement of the kingdom. We must remember Jesus' statement to his disciples in Luke 8 where he says this, To you it was given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they are in parables, so that seeing they may not see and hearing may may not understand. 
We have first to back up a bit to orient ourselves in the story. Jesus began his ministry way back in Luke chapter 4, his earthly ministry to the world. And towards the end of chapter 4, after preaching and healing in Galilee, he said this, It is necessary for me to proclaim the good news about the kingdom of God to other towns also, because I was sent for this purpose. So now Jesus' ministry was underway in chapter 4. And we see also by chapter 9, Luke tells us that Jesus went from town to town performing miracles and preaching. And Jesus' focus shifts in Luke chapter 9. And it says this towards the end of chapter 9. When the days drew near for him, Jesus, to be taken up, he determined to journey to Jerusalem. So this is why our current text, which is at the precipice of Jerusalem, is important. Because prior to this, we want to express train from his birth to his coming, John baptizing him. And that's months and years. But this train slows down and now we get into a car for the last from chapter 9. And now he's got in a car and he's walking. We're slowing down because the pinnacle of all of his ministries come into fruition. And after this parable, he's in Jerusalem and he's literally, we know what's going on hour by hour at that point. And the gospel is telling us at this point, we need to pause and see we're changing gears. We're dropping down a gear. So while on his way to Jerusalem, though, Jesus encounters a pivotal situation after preaching powerfully and performing undeniable miracles. Again, he's been doing this throughout his whole ministry. Some Pharisees approached Jesus in the middle of chapter 17 and in Luke, and this is what happened. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So from Luke chapter 9 throughout Luke chapter 19, Jesus teaches what it means to follow him and what the kingdom of God is like and how it's different. What is not made clear is the timeline of the arrival of the kingdom of God and what should be done during this waiting period. Because at this point, everybody's like, we're about to you know, break the pinata. The party's about to start. And Jesus says, no, wait. We already know from verse 11 that the expectation was that this, this, as soon as Jesus touched down in Jerusalem, the kingdom of God would appear. Despite what he had already said earlier to the Pharisees and to the crowds many times, Jesus tells a story or a parable of a nobleman who went to a far, far country to receive a kingdom. And while he was gone, he ordered his servants to engage in his business with his money until he returns. We should not lose sight that this story is being told to aid on clarifying the coming of the kingdom of God to his disciples. There's many people here, but Jesus is focusing on his disciples. If Jesus is the nobleman in the story, then the business Jesus was conducting is defined in, chapter, in verse 10, right there in Luke chapter 19. Take a look. We see the business that this nobleman, Jesus, was engaging in. It says that the Jesus, the Son of Man, came to seek and to save the lost. So if Jesus is the nobleman and his business is to seek and save the lost, the servants who will be his disciples and the citizens who will be the Jewish leaders and all those who oppose Jesus being the king, then the nobleman goes away for a period of time. Now there are two possible waiting periods here. The first could be Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection. We know that that's a perilous time because he died. I mean, he's dead. And the second is Jesus' ascension to heaven and his bodily return. I do not believe that the waiting period 
of Jesus' death and resurrection is in view here. As his death deals with the payment for sin and the conquering of death and Satan. Albeit this waiting period was mentioned by Luke earlier in chapter 5 when Jesus deals with the topic of fasting. I believe that the waiting period being spoken about here is the time after Jesus' resurrection and his ascension into heaven and his second coming in bodily form. This has more to do with the book of Luke as a whole since the first coming of Jesus was his inauguration or this announcement of the kingdom. Remember when he first was baptized, he said the kingdom of God is at hand, repent. So he inaugurated, he announced it. This second coming of Jesus is his consummation or the completion of the kingdom. And you might be wondering why? And this is because the business that Jesus left is yet to be fulfilled. The announcement of the kingdom is now being done by his disciples. And you, brothers and sisters in here, are also his disciples. And you're still announcing it as we did today. So this period is still at hand. And this is huge because Jesus left his disciples not to be without hope and without an understanding of next things to happen. This is because the business that Jesus left his disciples to do is happening right now as we speak. There are still many lost souls that are yet to be sought and saved by the, his disciples. So this first point of stewardship given is not about if a situation is, it's when the situation will come. It's not a condition. It will happen. It's just a when. We wait. Expect, we sang it already. When his kingdom comes. And we say, Maranatha, come quickly. But he still gives us things to do. Jesus will save all whom the Father has given him. The servants are to simply to seek them out and proclaim the good news of God to them. And as Christ saves them, the servants are to graft them into the body of Christ, teaching them to do likewise. To the Christians here this morning, beloved brother and sister in Christ, do you see the business that your King Jesus has left us to do? If you so too have a part to play in this great work of salvation by God, this is the reason. This is why we wait. We work while we wait. We don't just wait and sit. Not all of us were called to go on mission trips, yet each of us is called to be a missionary. Not all of us were called to fill Sunday morning, Sunday morning pulpits, yet all of us are commanded to preach the good news to all creation. Not all of us have financial and monetary means, yet every follower of Jesus Christ is rich in mercy and grace. Pour yourselves out, saints. Fill your mornings and nights with prayers to the Father, empowered by the Spirit, to the glory of the Son. Study your Bibles well and know the trace of your King's hand and what delights his heart. This is the work left for us to do in the interim, but also a caution to be aware that you are dealing and doing all this amongst people who vehemently and ardently reject Jesus as king. We see that in the text. When this nobleman goes away, a delegation is sent after him to reject him as king. And this today still happens. This is why we need to desperately cling to Christ and not to leaders or ministries. There are faithful and unfaithful leaders. There are faithful and unfaithful ministries. Enjoy and learn from the faithful ones but never at the expense of keeping Jesus at the forefront of your affections. Brothers and sisters, ministries will fall, leaders will fall, but Jesus reigns as king now and forever. I beg you to not attach yourself in a way that causes you to stumble as you look and adore your Lord.
As Paul would say, brothers and sisters, keep yourselves from idols. If you will indulge me a little bit more, I would like to share a few words from the Prince of Preachers. Charles Spurgeon from his sermon, The War on Truth. I love this little diddly, but he says it so clearly, I have to say it to you as well. This is a fight which all can do something who are the Lord's people. We each have a lot of work to do. If we are the Lord's elect, let us take care that we do it. You are a track distributor? Go on with your work. Do it earnestly. You are a Sunday school teacher? Go on. Stay in that blessed work. Do it as unto God and not as unto man. You are a preacher. Preach as God gave you ability, remembering that he requires no man more than he has given to him. Therefore, do not be discouraged if you have little success. Still go on. And if you can do only a little, at least provide a shot for others so that you may help them in their good works of faith and their labors of love. But let us all do something for Christ. I will never believe there is a Christian in the world who cannot do something. There is not a spider hanging on the king's wall that does not have its assignment. There is not a vine that grows in the corner of the churchyard that does not have its purpose. And there is not a single insect fluttering in the breeze that does not have some divine command. And I will never have it that God created any man or woman, especially a Christian man or woman, to be a blank, to be a nothing. He made for you an end. Find out what that is. Find your niche and fill it. If it be ever so little, if it is only to be a cutter of wood or someone who draws water, do something in this great battle for truth and God. Point number two. Stewardship examined. Part A, the faithful. Verses 15 through 19. We see in these next set of verses the rewarding of the faithful by the king. Remember, he went away as a nobleman in the story, and now he comes back as a king. He has authority now. Notice that the servants properly ascribe the ownership of the mina, or the mina, however you pronounce it, to the king in verses 16 and 18, when they say, Master, your mina. The minas entrusted to the servants were gifted to them in the first place. Lest I say, everything we have from God is a gift. Also, notice the kind words of Jesus to the disciples to know that he will return. Remember, they're on the precipice of Jerusalem. And as I always say where I'm from, it's about to get real. But we have to be mindful that Jesus knows this too. And he knows the hearts of his believers, especially Peter. But both Jesus, I'm sorry, both from the dead, Jesus will return, and from heaven. This double kindness would serve Peter and the rest of the disciples as they recall all the words after his death and after his ascension later on when they go about the Lord's business seeking the lost and proclaiming the good news of the salvation in Jesus Christ. We too must be reminded that all that we have is the Lord's, whether rich or poor, sick or healthy, married or single, parents or childless, having all our abilities or impaired in some way. Once in the body of Christ, our very life belongs to Christ and all that we have in it. Whether meager or much, it was the Lord's great wisdom that he supplied it to you. The Lord's desire is for us to engage in as much gospel proclamation work and support of it as possible. This results 
Sorry, the results are up to the Lord, but the labor is ours for the taking. And I must stop here and pause and say thank you, brothers and sisters, who labor in the music ministry and in deaconing and in the outdoors and the children and outside in the works happening in Providence and beyond. This is the good works that we have for us. Whether we're able physically or disabled physically, we're still able to pray, to support, to call, to text, whatever you can do to push the gospel. This is what we have to do. This is the good work the Lord left for us. We often wonder if it's something grand. We hear about, you know, amazing men and women from the past, like Amy Carmichael went to India, you know, or Spurgeon and his preaching. But it was, the best thing about Spurgeon, I must pause on my sermon here. He used to take people who would come to visit him in his humongous metropolitan tabernacle. They'd say, come early. And he'd take them downstairs and say, I want to show you my engine room. And this is back when steam was a big thing, you know, inside buildings. And they'd open a big door, and in this room was a bunch of men and women and children praying throughout the whole service. Why? Because they knew this was part of the gospel's work. They saw the minister working, but like Moses on the mountain and her and Aaron, they came to lift his arms. Because he's just a man. I'm just a man. A brother here is just a man. We're just men and women. How else can we do this work without others encouraging us? Pushing us, strengthening us, encouraging us. This is what we see in the text, brothers and sisters. That there is something to be gained from laboring in the Lord. But in the temporal right now. But we see here bigger than that. Look at the text. It says that these miners were exchanged for something. The rewards as seen in the parable are comparatively overly generous. The exchange of a miner is roughly three months wage. Which equals one city or town. Apparently. Now, for those of you who are like me who are number, number nerds, I have to look this up. So, a monthly wage in America, the United States of America, on average, each month is about $5,000. So, three months is $15,000. In the average size city or town, Boston is considered a mid sized city, even though you think it's big. New York is 15, 20, 200 times bigger than Boston. But Boston, being an example, is about a medium, medium sized city or town. It has, it, to buy Boston, if you were to cut a check for Boston, it's approximately $77 billion to buy Boston. Why am I giving these numbers? The, in the story, somebody was given three months' wage, 15K. And for faithfulness in that, they were given a $77 billion city. <laughs> Each. And now, is this, is this about, you know, getting cities? Is, is this about getting, no. It's a story, folks. It's a parable. It's not about literalness. But I believe the purpose is to say what Luke said in chapter 16. He says this, One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. Faithfulness is rewarded, folks. In case you didn't catch the punchline there. Faithfulness is rewarded. Sometimes now, but definitely later. And it's going to be mind-boggling. But we don't do it because we want stuff. We do it because he's faithful. Amen? Amen. Come on, church. Amen? Amen. All right, come on. I'm, I'm talking to you people. I'm talking to you. <laughs> so the big deal here is that faithfulness in Christ is always rewarded. It's never not seen, whether big or small. And I do believe my brother, you know, Kevin kind of robbed me of some glory later on in my Lord by telling y'all I texted him. I kind of keep that between me and him. <laughs> but the point I'm saying, though, brothers and sisters, is do something. You're not just meant to sit here and take in. Anyway, 
Faithfulness is rewarded. If you got nothing from what I just said, then remember this. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, since the one who draws near to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Part two of the second point of our section here titled, Stewardship Examined. We're looking now at the evil. The previous was the faithful. Verses 20 through 27. The final parts of this parable deal with an evil or wicked servant. The servant misrepresents the nobleman, showing that he is not only an evil and wicked servant, but the servant is always a liar, is always a, is also a liar too. The parable tells us that the nobleman, who is now a king with authority, uses words, the words of the evil servant to condemn the evil servant. And if you're in Christ, you already know that out of your word, your words will be used against you or for you. This is how our faith works. We are to take heed, though, here to the weighty truth being put before us. The words of evil servants will be, will be what is used to condemn them. Saints, the Lord does not take lightly crooked words. We are to speak straightly with grace and truth. But worse than that is the mischaracterization of the nobleman or Jesus. This actually happened to Jesus back in Luke chapter 11. When Jesus was casting out demons and people started to say that Jesus was doing this by the power of Satan himself. Now, Jesus uses that charge to make a point about the kingdom when he says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God is now upon you. So even their words to charge him to being a devil says that if this is being done by the devil, then his kingdom is going to fall apart anyway because the kingdom divided can't stand. But if this is being done by the power of God, then God himself has now appeared before you. To say that Jesus is a evil is to say that Jesus does not do the will of the Father. And worse is that he's not one with the Father. They're adversarial. To deny Jesus as having any goodness is to say that Jesus is a liar and that he did not come from God. And Psalm 118, which is also quoted later on in this chapter in Luke, but in verse 26 of Psalm 118, it says this, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Church, Jesus came in the name of the Lord. The parable ends with the king calling for the enemies who did not want him to reign over them to be slaughtered or killed. We have already established that the nobleman who is now a king is Jesus. The enemies who did not want Jesus to reign over them are the Jewish leaders and all who oppose Jesus for being king. The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple happened in 70 A.D., from what we know, the destruction was complete and the Jewish leadership was devastated. Yet, we must be careful here on our analysis of this part of the parable or story being told by Jesus. Remember, the goal was to bring clarity to, the, to when the kingdom of God would arrive, not about exacting justice yet. Since we have already established that the kingdom of God would be completed or consummated at the second return of Jesus, remember, when he first came, he inaugurated it. When he comes back, he's going to complete it. He's going to consummate it. We'll be married to him forever. This slaughter at the end of the parable looks to fit more in what Luke wrote back in chapter 12. And you can turn there quickly. Luke chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. We're going to see here what is this judgment? What is this slaughtering about? Luke chapter 12, verse 4 through 7. If you're already in 19, just go back a few chapters and it's going to help you. But looking there, we'll see, hopefully, what is meant by this slaughtering 
of his enemies. Luke chapter 12, starting at verse 4. I say to you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after can do nothing more. But I will show you the one to fear. Fear him who has authority to throw people into hell after death. Yes, I say to you, this is the one to fear. Aren't five sparrows sold for two pennies? Yet not one of them is forgotten in God's sight. Indeed, the hairs on your head are all counted. Don't be afraid. You are worth much more than many sparrows. The Christians who have already put their trust and faith in Christ are not intended are not the intended target of this text. For even as a Christian physically dies, the soul of a Christian goes to be with Christ in glory. Both the end of the parable and the verse that I just read in Luke chapter 12 are to those who are enemies of Christ. When, who deny his kingship and therefore deny his kingdom. To those in here who also deny that Christ is king, as well as those in the text. If you're here today and you deny Jesus now, I ask you to reconsider. Given everything you've heard this morning, this message of God and his son is near to you now. If it is in your mouth and it's in your heart, confess that. Confess Jesus is Lord. This is the good news. This is the free gift he gives to you. Condemnation is no longer over you because you've trusted in him who condemns. The king won't reject you if you accept him in this season. But as I said already, at his second coming, there'll be no more repentance, no more opportunity to turn. And even still, death itself cuts off the opportunity for all of us or any of us to call upon him for repentance. So this is the season. This is the reason Jesus gave us his parable. That all those who are far off, like I was, and like those who here who are in Christ were, have been called by his majesty, his king, to come and taste and see that he's good. The faithfulness of God is not upon me or you, but upon him and his work. We are called to just labor in him until he returns. And that it says in the text, since there is no distinction between a Jew or a Gentile, in case you don't know, we're Gentiles, unless you're a Jew in the house this morning, and the same Lord of all richly blesses all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And for those who trust in Christ and his faithfulness, there is no faithless servant doctrine, as I said earlier this morning. Thank, thanks to the Lord that Rhode Island does not count that doctrine. But in Christ, in Christ, faithfulness is put on Christ. We are just left to labor. And our labor is not in vain. And as I said earlier, it's not about how you are, it's about whose you are. Do you claim him? Do you adore him? Does he know you and do you know him? That is the question before us this morning in this text of stewardship. Our labors will betray us or they will absolutely exonerate us. Amen? If we labor in Christ, Christ sees it. But if we don't, if we're not, then those same actions will be our evidence of our trust not being in him. So I beg you, those who don't know him, to come. If you have any questions about this text or about this message, I would love to talk to you afterwards or one of the brothers here or sisters. 
For this is good news. And I love to close out because not all of us have, you know, the zeal that we might have. Some of us are on the struggle bus. <laughs> I'll leave you with this saying from Matthew. It says, by our Lord Jesus, all things have been entrusted to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son desires to reveal him. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take up my yoke and learn from me, because I am lowly and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you now thankful. You have spoken, Lord Jesus. Your testimony is true, and you have called all who labor to labor in joy and to labor well, for you will give them rewards, mostly and most importantly, yourself. But to all those who are afar, Lord, I pray that they heard the good news this morning. They were convicted. They know that they're not worthy. They know that all that they've amassed will be burned. But yet there's a good message this morning about labors that will not burn. Labors that will be reflected in our glory in Christ. Help those, Lord, this morning who heard this and believed to come to you. And we pray, dear Lord, that as we meditate and move from here, help our conversations, help our minglings to be about this truth. To gird up those who are weak, to bind up those who are broken, but also to guide those who have come into the knowledge of this truth. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.